proverbs in the book of proverbs and it means this skill of living well the ability to achieve goals often it's described in terms of fulfillment and success interesting that the word is used elsewhere in the old testament about the craftsmen who made the tabernacle they were skilled in woodwork and metalwork they were wise in that area it's used about sailors navigating a course it's used about singers and musicians it's used about administrators and governors it's taking the knowledge you have developing the skill you have and experiencing that and working it out in life in such a way as to do it well and that really is wisdom so a person who possesses wisdom in relationship to God is knowledgeable and experienced in following God's way and wisdom is being skillful in godly living having the ability to cope with whatever life brings in a way that honors God so this is the heart of wisdom uh, just turn with me for a moment out of the Proverbs into the book of Deuteronomy let's just have a look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 where this idea comes up very early in the history of Israel those great um, speeches that Moses makes as they're on the brink of the land and in Deuteronomy chapter 4 at verse 5 God speaks through Moses and says see I have taught you decrees and laws this is Moses speaking of course but God inspiring him to do it as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it observe them carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So God's real concern is that his people will demonstrate through obedience to his instruction, through living according to his character, demonstrate this wisdom in their practical lives. Psalm 19 verse 7 says the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple and the simple there are those who are humble enough to know that they need to receive it so knowledge is one thing knowledge about God lots of people may have that from reading the scriptures but wisdom is much more than a matter of intellect it's not knowing that something is true it's knowing how to apply that to life and if we can keep that in mind over the today as we look at these things not just knowing what is true but knowing how to live it in our lives so it's not a matter of intelligence it's more a matter of spiritual vitality and it shows itself in things like self-control and zeal and persistence self-motivation controlling our impulses delaying gratification all those things that actually shape character that make us mature as men of God those are the things that come with wisdom and into which wisdom wants to direct us so that's what we're looking at the application of the truth about God in practical ways the how-to's of life and what it implies in uh, our practical application of it and what is distinctive is its insistence that the moral upright living which is as the creator intends us to live in his world stems from and depends on 
a right relationship with God. So the most famous verse in the book is Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. You put with that Proverbs 9 verse 10, put the two together and you get the knowledge and the wisdom related to one another. So 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, that is recognizing God as God is how you know truth in this world. But then look at Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So knowledge and wisdom belong together, but wisdom emphasizes interpretation, application, understanding. Now, I think it's important to say at this point that Proverbs is not a set of universal truths that you apply like a sort of blunt instrument to every problem of life. The Proverbs are control sensitive. Uh, it's more like using a delicate scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon. You don't just blunder in and say, well, the proverb says this, so it must be this that I've got to do. We have not only to interpret the words, but we have to interpret them into our own circumstances. And that's why we need wisdom. So my second question, what is wisdom? Why do we need it? Well, the basic answer is so that we can live a godly life that is fully pleasing to the Lord. But how does that work out in practice? Well, let's read the first seven verses of the book, shall we? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. He may have written many of them, and he certainly collected them <laughs> together. He's the human author of the book. But why is he writing it? Now, this is very helpful. Verse 2, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, for doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. Now Solomon is, of course, the great wise man of the Old Testament. God gave him wisdom. That's what he asked for. That's what God gave him. And so he's writing this down, that we can share that gift of God. And he is saying here that he's written this book, or he's writing this book, because he wants us to attain wisdom, look at verse 2, to attain wisdom and instruction, and then to understand words of insight. Now the sort of wisdom and instruction he's thinking about is in verses 3 to 5. They elaborate what it looks like to live wisely. And this is pro produced by the process of disciplined learning or instruction in verse 2. And it's seen in how we deal with others, the high moral standards of acting rightly and justly and fairly in verse 3. So the wise man's being taught God's truth and listening and receiving. And he's putting it into practice, verse 3, in his prudent behavior. <coughs> And you can tell a wise man by his character. He'll be right and just and fair in everything he does. And then verse 4 adds to this prudence, because we all, from our youth, uh, need God's instruction. We need to develop our understanding. Uh, we're all simple in that sense. We all start from the same base. We don't have that wisdom. We need God to give it to us. And so that wisdom 
in verse 4, which is seen in prudence, that means making sensible decisions and thinking ahead and uh, managing our affairs well, all of that comes when we are simple enough to come to God and say, Lord, I don't have this wisdom myself. Whether we're young, verse uh, 4, knowledge and discretion to the young, whether we've been around a bit longer, if we have and we think we've got some wisdom, well, verse 5 says, let the wise listen and add to their learning. You never get beyond needing to learn more and more wisdom, needing to practice it in our lives. So whether we're young or older, all of us need that wisdom because we don't have it within ourselves. We're sinful people. Our default position is always to go against God's will. And all these are greatly to be desired qualities of life. These things like uh, prudence and justice and fairness and so on. But if we want to gain it, then we've got to start in the right place, which is verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So let me say, none of what we do in these three talks can be in our lives unless we start with that verse. And the fear of the Lord doesn't mean, of course, being terrified about God. It means a, a right respect and reverence and awe for God. I think the fear of the Lord is best expressed as letting God be God, acknowledging that he is God, and practically doing that in our lives. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it's the fear of the Lord now, whenever you get the Lord in capital letters, and I'm sure you know this already, but just to remind you, whenever you get the Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, it's always the name Yahweh. It's always what we used to call Jehovah. Most scholars now transliterate it as Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name that God gave to Moses when he called him at the bush and when he revealed himself to him as I am who I am. That's what it that's what the name Yahweh really means. I am the ever-present, present tense God. I never change. I always am the same. I am what I am, and I always will be what I am. And so we have confidence that as God established that covenant relationship with Moses and said, I'll always be with you, I'll be your God, and you will bring out Israel and they will be my people. That whole Old Testament theme of covenant revolves around this name of Yahweh. So whenever you get the Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, think covenant. Think about the God who reveals himself to you. Think about the God who is faithful and keeps his promises and constantly is overcoming our weaknesses and revealing himself to us more and more. Now it is the fear of that God, letting the covenant Lord be covenant Lord in our lives. That is the beginning of wisdom. And all the time I've got to fight on against God, and I'm saying, well, I'm glad that Jesus has forgiven me my sins, but I don't want God to control that area of my life. And I don't want him to take me there to do that. And I don't want, I don't want. Then I'm not really fearing the Lord. I'm not really saying he's God. I'm saying, yeah, I want all the blessings and the goodies, please, but I'll take the control into my hands. And as I do that, of course, I become unwise, I make foolish decisions, and things start to go ship -shaped or they rather don't go ship shape, they fall apart. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so here is the, uh, the encouragement to us to let God be God. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. He's Yahweh. He has an everlasting love. He's steadfast. And to fear him like that, <clears throat> to recognize him as God, doesn't mean that we're scared of him and we're terror struck, but it means that we worship him as God. 
And so this is the appetizer at the start of the book. If we let God be God like that in our lives, then we're into a life of knowledge and wisdom and all the fulfillment that brings. But look at the second half. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that's the other side of it, isn't it? That if we're not fearing the Lord like that, we're really behaving very foolishly. Now, chapters 1 to 9 are all about the king instructing his sons uh, about how they should live. Using Proverbs makes learning life skills an adventure and a challenge. I think every youth group in every church should do Proverbs 1 to 9 at least once every three years. Because Proverbs 1 to 9 is all about how to grow up as a young man who really knows God's truth and is trying to apply it to life. And it's especially related to the issues that we face when we're young. They don't all go away, but when we're young, there are often uh, challenges. There's certainly a lot of adventure ahead. There's a lot of unknowns. There's some marvelous things that God wants to do with us, but we're making decisions as we grow up about the way we're going to travel, about what our priorities are going to be. And understanding what the proverb says and then delving into its significance and applying it to our lives is the way to get ourselves straight on the path and to be going God's way, God's way of fulfillment. So that's what the book is really about. Those first nine chapters are especially a sort of uh, handbook about um, uh, growing strong as a Christian, young Christians or young in years, whatever. But um, how does it work in practice? Let me just say a couple of words about this and then we'll get into the text. The word proverb comes from a Hebrew word that means to be like something or to compare one thing with another. So a proverb makes a comparison between one set of circumstances and another, one set of behavior and another. And it does that in the two halves of the verse, which, as you see set out in our English Bible, uh, it's expressed as parallel halves of the one verse. And in all our modern translations, that's very clearly indented in the second half so that we can see what the two halves are. That's the way it was put together in the original. Uh, of course, that's the major way in which um, Hebrew poetry worked. And some of the proverbs are quite poetic in style. It's certainly the dominant style of the whole book. Now, the point is this. The second half of each verse is always the more significant because it expands the first half in some way. It develops it, it illustrates it, there may be a contrast, there may be some emphasis. But what the Proverbs is doing is compressing it together. It's a sort of distilled essence, it's like a crystallization. And the concentrated <coughs> nature of the saying forces you to stop and think. So. Um, even in English proverbs we have that, don't we? I mean there's an English proverbs that says many hands make light work a good proverb for clearing up on the boat this weekend many hands make light work but there's also an English proverb that says too many cooks spoil the broth <laughs> now you see one is appropriate at one time and one is appropriate at another time and what you have to do is you have to apply it to your context there are truths in both, but if everybody's trying to wash up at the same time, it will be a bit chaotic. Um, 
But what the proverb does is, is it distills the idea, it concentrates it, and it says to you, okay, think it through. So the proverbs are general reflections, observations. They're not cast-iron promises, but they convey observations and advice and God's insight to us, which connect us and our lives directly. Um, but they have to be applied wisely. So my big piece of advice is, when you're reading proverbs, don't skim read it. Don't just go from one verse to the next. Oh, that's about this, that's about that. No, stop. It's much better to read two verses of Proverbs a day and think through them and say, how does this relate to me? What's this really all about? What is the implication of that? Because that's the way they're written. They're meant to be chewed. They're meant to be not just swallowed down as fast as you can, but to be enjoyed. There's a flavor in them that you need to get out by thinking through what they say and um, recognizing that while the focus of the book is about life in the everyday, uh, it's primarily a book, like all the books of the Bible, that teach us about God. I mean, I always feel with every book of the Bible we should ask, what is God teaching us about God here? It's God's book. Um, it's far more God's book about God than it is God's book about me. Of course, we live in a culture where we think the world revolves around me, and a lot of our life has to be lived that way think of all the messages that come to you, the messages you send, the people you meet, the things you do. Of course your life revolves around you, but the world doesn't. The world revolves around the character of God. That is the great fixed certainty, reality in the world. And so Proverbs reminds us again and again, because the name of the Lord is mentioned numerous times throughout the book, that it's the character of God and our fear of this God, our reverence and awe and worship of this God who's revealing himself in his instruction, that's what keeps us going in our Christian lives and keeps us on track. Okay, well now let's, let's pitch in then to chapter 3 and just have a look at some of the things that it shows us and also some of the ways in which we can uh, meditate and think about these um, big ideas that come through in this chapter. It's a chapter which is part of this instruction to my son. You see, chapter 3, verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching. And so it's instruction for any of us. We're all sons of God if we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. None of us has got anywhere near the maturity that we would love to have as Christians. So we're all in the learning process together. And God is giving us this divine instruction to his sons as to how we are to live. Now I want to take it two verses at a time and just try and pick out some of the big wisdom ideas from it. Verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Now those incentives are strongly up front in verse 2, aren't they? Long life is a sign in the Old Testament of God's blessing and God's um, grace experienced in people's lives, prolonged long life, many years, and peace and prosperity. Peace here is that big word that's often used in the Old Testament, shalom, which means prosperity in the sense of salvation, a broad place, freedom, 
well-being, we might say, the good life. So he's saying if you want a long life and a good life, then these commands need to be in your heart. But you see what the danger is? See, as you look at the proverb, why does he say in 3 verse 1, do not forget my teaching? Because the danger is that even now we sit there and say, oh yeah, I realize that, the Bible will help me to live well, and in God's mercy maybe to live long. But the danger is to forget that on a daily basis. That happens, of course, when we don't practice what we're being taught. See how the second part of verse 1 expands it. Do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands. Now, if you keep the commands, it means you practice them. Um, And so we said in church on Sunday, last Sunday morning, I said that remembering is not just calling something to mind in the Bible, but it's acting on it. And so remembering the teaching of who God is and what he wants us to be doing means acting on it, keeping the commands in your heart. Now the heart in the Bible is where you make your decisions. We talk in our culture about making your mind up. But the Bible would say, no, it's really making your heart up. The mind's involved, of course you have to think things through. But the heart is more than the mind. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the control centre of your personality. So if your heart is fixed on God, it means that he's central to your whole life and your whole purposes. So keeping your commands, keeping God's commands in your heart means that at the control centre of your personality, what God is calling you to do is the most important thing. That's the command that God is uh, giving you. And we shouldn't think of the heart just as sort of the emotions, you know. I mean, we get it, don't I? Certainly in Britain, I guess here, Valentine's Day on February the 14th is a, is a big commercial occasion. <laughs> and uh, people send Valentine cards and messages and all sorts of stuff. And you always see on Valentine cards hearts, don't you? And so people think, ah, oh, the heart, you know, the romance and love and fl- all the flickering emotions. That's what the heart's about. Now, the Bible heart is different from that. Uh, For the Bible, the seat of the emotions is the kidneys, but they don't look very good on cards. (laughs) So, um, but the heart is the place where you make your decisions. That's what you, that's what you are as a person. And that's why the the Old Testament says to us, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. See, over this weekend, God may say something to you, particularly through your study or a conversation or a talk. And if God's voice, you know when we hear God's voice, when there's something that's particularly appropriate to us and we think, I need to act on that. Don't harden your heart. How do you harden your heart? By doing nothing. All I have to do is study the Bible and do nothing about it and my heart will become hard. And it will become more and more difficult to respond. Um, So I think it's really important for us to recognize that when he says in that simple little half sentence there, keep my commands in your heart, it's actually a big secret there. In the control center, let God's teaching be governing the way that you live. And if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, because that's the way that we start to drift and start to resist and start to miss out on the wisdom God has for us. So there is a process going on. Sometimes I say to people, you know, um, uh, 
studying the Bible is really quite risky. Um, I don't know if you filled in any of those life insurance for, uh, forms recently, or it says, do you indulge in any hazardous pursuits? <laughs> and of course it's thinking about, you know, um, uh, bungee jumping and uh, <laughs> flying glider planes and <clears throat> all sorts of things like that. But I say to people, you ought to put in there, yes, studying the Bible. Because studying the Bible is a hazardous pursuit. I tell you why, it'll either soften your heart or it'll harden your heart. Mm. You never come out of it the same. Uh, we think we come out of it the same. We think it just washed over me. But actually it's hardened my heart if I don't do anything about it. So keep my commands in your heart. This is the process by which wisdom develops. Then verses 3 and 4. Let love and faithfulness, by the way we're not doing the whole chapter, fear not. Verse 3. <laughs> Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favour and a good name in the sight of God and man. Now here, <clears throat> this steadfast love and faithfulness is, of course, what God shows to us. Let love and faithfulness never leave you means that God's love and faithfulness are constantly promoting in us the same response to him, of love to him and faithfulness in being committed to him. So as God has shown this faithful love to us, the proverb is saying, reciprocate it as you hear and respond to his wisdom. Be loyal in your devotion to put it into practice, the wisdom that the Lord gives you. And uh, it explains what that means. Why does it never leave you? Well, because bind them round your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Um, if you wear a neck chain, it's round your neck all the time. It never leaves you. And uh, the word written on the heart is another picture of constancy. They're always, it's always with you. So what is written on the heart is that which is at the centre of our lives, the most precious thing to us. It never is, uh, we are never away from it. And he's saying, make God's wisdom the, the focus of your life. And what will you find? Well, you will find favour, that's the word for grace, grace from God. And you will find, literally, um, a good name reputation from men. So if you allow God's love and faithfulness never to leave your heart but to shape your response of love and obedience, faithfulness to God, then it will work out in your life that the grace of God will flow more and more into it and actually you will have a good name amongst other people because you'll be someone who's competent and dependable and you will develop uh, 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 a wisdom reputation in the sight of God, favour, and in the sight of man, a good name. Well, that's something to work for, isn't it? The wisdom teaching has to be treasured and embraced and never let go like the chain around our neck, but it has to be uh, worked out in practice in order for us to develop as men of God. So we looked at the process in verses 1 and 2, the principle in verses 3 and 4. Now let's look at the practice in verses 5 and 6. They're famous verses and they've been very important life verses for me. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him 
and he will make your paths straight. Let me read that again. It's terrific words. Trust in Yahweh, the faithful covenant God, with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, uh, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Or footnote says he will direct your paths. He will guide you. So what God looks for in your life, if you're going to be a wise man, is faith, trust. Trust in the Lord. You can trust him because he is Yahweh. He's the unchanging, faithful, present tense God. So you can lean your weight on him. Trust is a matter of taking our burdens and weight and our whole life and relying on him, leaning on him, on his word and on his character. And that means, in terms of um, verse 5, a negative. Lean not on your own understanding. Because human insight is never, never sufficient. So this means that we're to order our whole lives under God. And to go to him about everything. Not just to go to him when we've run out of ideas. Not just to go to him when we've hit a brick wall and we don't know what to do. Oh, I'd better go and pray about it. But constantly in every part of every day to trust in the Lord and not to lean on my own understanding. So when you arrive at your office desk or when you get to, in school or college to today's lessons or lectures or whatever it is you're doing, just a prayer that says, Lord, give me your wisdom. Help me to understand. I can't lean on my own understanding. I'm simple. I'm foolish. But you're God. You're the faithful Lord, you're the one I want to guide me. And um, as we do that and bring God consciously into every part of every day, work, home, friendships, activities, whatever it is, church life, lean not on your own understanding. Always be suspicious about your own wisdom. But always counteract that by trusting in the Lord, putting your weight on the Lord with all your heart. Do you notice the two alls? <clears throat> Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse 6, in all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Now, if it says all, what does that exclude? Everything else. Nothing. <laughs> okay, so, you know, when it says, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, mm -hmm. Romans eight twenty-eight. What's left out of that? Nothing. And therefore, this is what faith's all about. It's saying, yeah, in all these things, in all your heart, in all your ways, wisdom is the life of faith. And verse 6 is saying, submit to him. And what will he do? He'll show you the way ahead. He'll make your path straight. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily easy. There is a straight path from here to that boat, but it isn't necessarily easy. <laughs> In fact, um, you know, you could break your neck quite easily on the rocks here. But there is a path, and he'll guide you, and he'll show you. It's not saying be a Christian and life will be hunky-dory and there'll never be any problems. The problems are part of the all things that God allows into our lives so that we trust him more. But, you see, the practice is, this is an area, whatever the issue is, that I've got to submit to God, I've got to give to him. So when you face those problems in the home and you've got to make big decisions for your family, that part, part of the all things.
when you guys were still studying, uh, thinking about what you're going to do with your life and what career you're going to take up, and, or when you're thinking about marriage and who you might marry, and all of these things, everything, the big things, but also the everyday things. How are you going to spend that half hour that you've got? that bit of free time, going to waste it or going to invest it and use it. All these things in all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. And I've been in ministry now 50 years this month and I've seen an awful lot of people in awful lots of different circumstances of life. And I would say that this is always being fulfilled, that when people really seek God, the mists go, the clarity comes, they begin to see the path ahead but we've got to submit to him. We've got to let him be God. We've got to trust in him with all our heart and give up leaning on our own understanding. I want to do just two more sections and then um, we'll stop for, uh, for this morning and we'll have some interactions and come back to what I've said. So here we are, we've got the process. <coughs> Don't forget the teaching, keep it in your heart, it'll shape your life. We've then got the principle, um, let it control you, let it be with you, God's word, God's instruction through the scriptures, and uh, you will find favor with God, his grace will pour in, and you'll find a good name with others, people will begin to respect your maturity. Then trust in the Lord with all your heart, here's the way in which it works out in terms of the practice. But verses seven and eight, there is a price, and the price is important to take into account. Do not be wise in your own eyes, verse 7. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now, you see what he's saying? It's coming to an end of confidence in me and in my wisdom, so that I'm not leaning on my own understanding, which leads me not to be wise in my own eyes, but to fear the Lord and shun evil. Now that is the price, and that can seem to be very costly to our pride and to our self-confidence. But it's very necessary, isn't it? Everyone whom God uses has been significantly humbled. I've seen that over the years many, many times. Every man whom God uses, God has humbled because he's not going to share his glory with another. And if it is the glory of God that is being worked through our lives in all sorts of different ways, then we need to humble ourselves under God, fear the Lord, which is back to chapter 1, and shun evil. That's what fearing the Lord looks like, turning my back on evil. So you see, here's the price. First of all, it's the humility of saying, I need to submit to God and to recognize that he's the Lord and that I need to turn away from the evil of my own sinful heart and the world and the flesh around me, the, the flesh and the world around me. And in doing that, turning away from evil, I'm expressing my trust in God. And he says this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones, which obviously is a picture of just living a, uh, a healthy um, happy, fulfilled life. It's the good life that comes as a result of this determination. So there's the price. Am I prepared to do that? If I'm wise in my own eyes, I'll say, I'm in control, I'm doing it my way. 
It's interesting that the most recorded song, I think, in the last 30, 40 years was that dreadful song, I Did It My Way. Um, uh, and it's actually the music that is most used at funerals in the UK, more than anything else, that song. I Did It My Way. Sounds like they're honest. Yeah. Uh, so here is the, um, the guy who's wise in his own eyes. I did it my way. It was a terrible mess and it all went wrong, but I did it my way. Now says the Bible, fear the Lord and shun evil. That'll bring health to your body, nourishment to your bones. In other words, God will look after you. He will keep you. He will guide you. It doesn't mean you'll always be healthy, but it means that he will give to you that fulfillment in life, the good life you're looking for. And then lastly, verses 9 and 10, look at the profit that comes. If there's a price to pay, fear the Lord and shun evil. There's a profit that God promises. Verse 9, honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. And it's saying, God loves to bless his people. That's a general observation. Uh, it's not an infallible rule that every Christian will be incredibly wealthy, that piety <coughs> brings prosperity. But the particular piety is a recognition that every good thing comes from God, from the Lord. He's the one who gives us what we need for our lives. And that's expressed how? In verse 9, honouring the Lord. So whatever God has given us, you may feel you don't have very much wealth, but honour the Lord with what you do have. And you may think, you haven't had a bumper harvest and there, aren't much, there isn't much in the crops, but give him the first fruits. See, it's an attitude of heart towards God. It's not about quantity. It's about direction. It's about God being God. And the profit that he gives to those who walk with him is that he will guide us and direct us and he will honour those who honour him. And recognising that all that we have is the product of his grace and goodness, then, well, we need to remind ourselves that putting God first and having his concerns at the heart of our lives is what really matters most. And yet verse 10 is balanced by verses 11 and 12, which says, My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline, and don't resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father, the son he delights in. And that's interesting, isn't it? That that's put after these great promises about um, your body and your bones being nourished and your fats being full of wine and your crops overflowing your barns. But what if it isn't like that? What if that doesn't seem to be happening? Well, verse 11 seems to say, don't despise the Lord's discipline, his training. Um, don't resent his rebuke, because often that is what wisdom will do. It will show us that we're going the wrong way, that that's not um, God's purpose for us. And one aspect of his love for us is his discipline and the reproof that verse 11 talks about. Don't resent his, rebu his rebuke. Because the danger is that when that happens in our lives and God disciplines us in some way, we will despise, we will reject or dismiss what he does, we'll get weary of it, we'll give it up, we'll say, oh, I'm, I'm not prepared to let God do that in my life. But God doesn't discipline his children because he wants to cause them pain any more than a good father does that. 
but he want, he does it because he wants to bring us into his blessings. And so part of wisdom is recognizing that when things seem to go wrong, it's God shouting to us through our troubles, stop and think about it all, see what it's all about. Uh, we do it for the good of our children as fathers and we all know as children that our earthly fathers sometimes got it wrong, but it was a sign of their love to rebuke and to discipline us as children. And it's a sign of God's love that he rebukes us and corrects us. We all know that guys who grow up without any sort of discipline find it really hard to get any sort of structure into their lives. And although discipline can sometimes seem really hard and painful, it's to get us back on the path. That's why God rebukes and corrects us. So don't resent it, he says. Don't reject it. It's his love of work, like a good father. He disciplines uh, his children, and God disciplines us. And all of us, whatever stage we are, can find that happening for our good. So don't resent it, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. It is a sign of his kindness and his grace. Well, I'm going to stop there because I just want to give us that flavour of these aspects of the positive instruction that God's given us. If you like a bunch of uh, sweet peas, then we've got process, principle, practice, price and profit. When it doesn't seem to be working out like that, then we have to say, well, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Why is this discipline here? And it's usually God's means of pulling us up and getting us back on track and showing us the way he wants us to go. But I think, um, as we discuss this, the, the one thing I'd like to underline is this is a heart attitude. This is a lifestyle. It's not, oh, here's a bit of wisdom. I can apply this to that. I sort of stick it on with some glue. But rather it's saying, this is the, the direction of my life. This is the primary purpose for which I'm living. These are the things that I want to um, make central in my heart. Um, God's character being formed in me. Now, we'll look at that in much more um, practical ways. But I wanted in this first talk to just set out some of the um, basic principles and I'd love you to uh, think about it and uh, maybe come back uh, on some, some comments. Mm -hmm. Dan, do you want to...